listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. As we get started, I want to ask you this morning how you're coming into this time. So where are you? <clears throat> so when you go to, uh, when we used to go to the mall, when it was safe, you would get lost sometimes. You'd be looking for a particular store, and uh, you'd find one of the maps, one of the big maps that was there at one of the intersections of, of hallways, and it would always say, you are here, and there was a little red dot right there. So you knew where you were in relation to the rest of the map. And so where are you this morning? So what are you bringing in? And what I want you to do is as you consider what you're bringing in this morning, where you are, I just want you to hold that in your hand. Just hold that in your hand. And maybe this morning you are, you say, I'm confused, or um, I feel missed, or maybe you're full. Maybe you're really encouraged. Maybe you feel judged. Maybe you're depressed. Maybe you're tired. Maybe there's a longing in you. Maybe you feel missed. Just hold that in your hand. And here's what I want us to do. As you hold that there, I want us to take that before the Father this morning. And I want you to be reminded that he sees you. And he knows you. And let's ask him to meet us in that place. If it's hurt or if it's longing, if it's joy, if it's pain or anger, can we take that to him this morning? Can we take that before the cross and be reminded that he's going to meet with us? That, that is how we are, but it's not who you are. And we don't have to take that and get rid of it. I'm not saying, hey, let's set that aside and let's just, let's just on the word of God. Let's just, let's just, I'm not worried about that. The only way that we can encounter the presence and the power of Jesus Christ is by acknowledging, here's where I am today. So let's sit in the reality of that. Father, we pray simply now, as Lane has already commended us and as he has covered us, I pray through the power of your spirit, because of the finished work of Christ, that you would meet us, that you would meet me where I am. I pray that you would meet us where we are today. That you would soothe and satisfy. That you would remind us that we are secure. Remind us that you love us, that we are yours. And nothing can ever separate us 
from you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. So we'll be in Daniel chapter 8, uh, like we mentioned. As we jump into this, we've been in the book of Daniel for several months. We looked at chapters 1 through 6 back in the fall, and we started a couple weeks ago looking at the second half of Daniel. And if you've been here, you know that this is the prophetic half of Daniel's book. So the first half was narrative. It was the storytelling portion of Daniel's book. And the reason we had to set that up is so that he could verify who he was as a prophet for the second half. And so before we jump in, here's what I want to do. By, by show of hands, literally, okay, not metaphorically, I know we're in this uh, prophetic uh, time, uh, but who comes from a Baptist, mostly Baptist background? Show of hands, okay? How many of y'all come from either a Methodist or Episcopal background? Anybody? Okay. I see that hand. Okay, two of them. Okay. Uh, how many of y'all come from a charismatic background? You get to raise two hands. Two hands. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Uh, what about a Presbyterian background? We know y'all don't raise hands, okay? So, um, what about a Catholic background? Anybody? Cool. And uh, what about if you're just like, man, I wasn't raised in church at all. Any unchurched? Yeah. My favorite people. Yeah. However you're coming into this time this morning, when we look at prophecy, you're probably already coming in with some preconceived notions of what you've been taught and believed. And that's okay. We just want to acknowledge that and say, yeah, some of these things were, were put on me just by these certain traditions. But when we look at the word of God, 25% of it is prophecy. 25%, that's a lot. And we think, okay, well, most of the prophecy points to the first coming of Jesus. But in reality, for every one prophecy of Jesus' first coming, there were eight prophecies about his second coming. That's a lot. And so here's what I want us to see is that we should be talking about this. It's very scary. It's strange. We can't figure it out. I wish I had a chart. You know, like I wish I could just tell you all the exact dates. That would be awesome. I can't. But here's what I do know. And I'll summarize our church's stance on an eschatology, study of the end times. Here's what I know about the second coming. Y'all are like, all right, here we go. Here's what it is. People keep asking me, what are we? Here's what it is, okay? I'll summarize it. Four words. Jesus is coming back. That's it. If you want any more details, next week we'll be looking at Daniel chapter 9. I'll be back up at McDonough. So um, you can email me at mark at southpoint.org. So, uh, and I'll answer all of your questions. Uh, if, if you were to ask, I've been married for uh, just over 15 years. If you were to ask me after being married for 15 years, um, hey, how well do you know your wife? If I were to say, I know everything there is to know about my wife. If you, if, you know any, if you have any basis in reality of truth, you would slap me, right? It doesn't matter if you've been married for one year or 15 years or a matter, where are Abby and Jonah? Like a matter of like, you know, weeks, you know. Um, if you've been married even for 60 years, you're not going to ask somebody who's been married for 60 years, hey, have you figured out your wife yet? No. See, some of you are like, <laughs> No. We haven't figured it out, but here's what's, here's what's incredible about that. Even though we know that we are never going to figure out our wives. Everybody say never. Never. That's where the guys say amen. Okay, that better not be your last one, okay? Even though we know that we'll never figure out our wives, that still does not keep us from getting married. And so the same is true with prophecy. We're not going to be able to figure out all the details. We don't know exactly what all these things mean. 
But can I tell you, that shouldn't stop us from engaging in these difficult parts of the Word of God. God has given us all kinds of different genres here in the Bible. And it just so happens when we get to the apocalyptic versions that he uses these weird, strange, bizarre images, stories of what's going to happen. But it still is to point our hearts and our eyes to the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back. There's a guy back in 1988, and he wrote a book. It was called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is Going to Happen in 1988. He sent 350,000 copies to pastors around America, and then he sold millions more. Dude was famous. He was on TBN. Uh, he had articles in Christianity Today. A lot of churches bought into this. Well, lo and behold, he said it was going to happen between September 11th and September 13th, 1988. It didn't happen. So then he had to rework his calendar because uh, that's... <laughs> He was in the money-making business for selling books, you know. So he reworks his calendar. He says, oh, man, I was looking at the Mayan calendar. I should have been looking at the Gregorian calendar. He said, I got it wrong. Jesus is actually coming back in October of 1989. So he had a revised edition of this book and sold a million more copies. Didn't happen. As far as I know. I mean, I don't know. Uh, ask Tim LaHaye. He, he knows better than I do. And so... Um, so then in 1990, he, he kind of went, you know, radio silent for a few years, came out again in 1993. 1993, guess what the book was called? Yes, yeah, more of y'all should have been answering that question with me, okay? 93 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1993. Didn't happen. He sold, he revised that, that book every single year until the year 2000. Crazy, huh? And then he died in May of 2001. So um, he, I guess it would still be going, going, going. We don't have all of the answers. We don't know. I'm not trying to sell you on a perspective or a vantage point. I want you to know that Jesus is coming back. And so when we look at this passage this morning, even Daniel chapter 8, a very, what, what could be, I actually think it's one of the simplest chapters in all of Daniel of the second half but as we look at this prophetic section of God's word, we're reminded of the power and the control, the sovereignty that God has over all of creation, even the strange parts. Jesus is coming back. So we've already read the passage. Thank you again, Lane, for doing that. I want us to walk through Daniel chapter 8. Uh, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna kind of skip through. We're going not, to not, not skip through it. We're going to uh, fast walk through the first half as we see the vision and then we're going to saunter through the second half, okay? Everybody good with that? And we're going to look at the interpretation of this vision. So he begins here in Daniel chapter 8, verse number 1. A couple things I want us to see. It says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So what he's saying is, here's when the vision showed up. So last week we saw the beginning of chapter 7. If you look back, so this is just basic hermeneutics. We talked about this some last week. My dad did. We have to look back and see, okay, or two weeks ago, in the first year of King Belshazzar, so this is the third year, so this is putting us at 551 B.C., give or take a few months or maybe a year or two. So it was at 553 B.C., so this is B.C., we're going down in years, so here we are at 551 B.C. Notice what Daniel says here. He doesn't say that I closed my eyes and had a dream. It says that he saw in a vision. So dreams happen when you're sleeping, visions happen when you're awake. That's a little bit of the difference there. So he says, I saw this. He's experiencing this. This is him stepping into a sci-fi movie, and it's happening all around him. He's there in the middle of all of this, this action. He's breathing it in. And if we, as we just read at the end of the passage, he, he's freaking out. 
So he's not just seeing this like on a TV screen. He's experiencing this. And look at verse number two. And I saw in the vision, again, he uses this saw and vision. He's there with it. And when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, I was at the Ulai Canal. Okay, so even in the second verse, we see Susa. Susa was not around yet when he had this vision. It was going to be the capital city of Persia. So he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't literally in Susa. Like God didn't pick him up and place him there. But through this revelation, he says, here is a picture, a revelation of what's going to happen. Susa was going to be the capital city of Persia. So he says, here, I'm going to put you in the future so you can see and experience what's going to happen. It's like if you watch Aladdin um, and uh, you get the magic carpet ride, you know, and he's going all over and you got that little monkey. I forget, Abu, is that his name? So this is like, somebody loves that movie. Okay, way too much. This is like... Um, God taking Daniel on this magic carpet ride over the future. So he's saying, here's what's going to happen, okay? So he sets this up for us. Verse number three, here's what I want us to do. We're going to see nine parts of this vision and nine different symbols that we're going to see in the vision. And then we're going to go in the second half and look at the interpretation of these things. Y'all ready? I'm going to talk fast. Here we go. Verse number three, we see the first couple here. First, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had how many horns? Two horns. So we see, first of all, a ram is standing there. We see, second of all, that it had two horns. Third, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. So we see here we've got a ram. It appears indestructible. It appears unbeatable. There are two horns, and one of those horns, there's a higher horn, okay? So we've got our th first three images. Now we're going to keep going. Verse 5, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west. So this is our fourth one, a goat. Uh, it comes uh, from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. I've been asked this question more this past week than how I'm doing or who I'm cheering for in the Super Bowl tonight. I've been asked the question, what is the conspicuous horn? Well, I'm glad you asked. We'll get to it in just a moment. But here's what we notice about the male goat is that it goes across the whole earth without touching the ground. You've seen it in cartoons. Somebody's running so fast that their feet aren't even touching the ground. He's saying this goat is incredibly fast, so fast it looks like a hovercraft coming across the ground. Then we get down to this conspicuous horn. What is that, the fifth thing that we see uh, here? And then verse number six, this, this goat came to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he emerged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. Not just one, but both of them. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. So we see here the goat comes in. The ram was no match for the goat. Okay? He was literally the goat. The greatest of all time. Destroyed the ram. This would have worked out so much better if this was last year's Super Bowl, you know? I like that. Some of y'all are like, what does that even mean? The Rams, they were in the Super Bowl last year. Okay, so verse number eight. Then the goat became exceedingly great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So we see here a few more things. So we've got the conspicuous horn, it's broken, and these four horns come up from it. 
So this is the goat. He comes in, conspicuous horn. It gets broken. Four horns come up from it. Everybody good so far? Just nod your head. It doesn't. Okay. So we'll figure it out in a few minutes. Verse 9. So he transitions here a little bit. So we begin with, he's saying, here's where I am. We got this ram. The goat comes in. He defeats the ram. Verse number nine. Out of one of them, one of these small, out of one of those four conspicuous horns came a little horn. Everybody say little horn. Okay. So that's our eighth thing. He says, uh, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Now, this little horn emerges. He begins attacking those around him. Just so you know, when it says the glorious land, that represents Canaan. That represents the people of God. So he's saying this one comes up and starts to attack and destroy the people of God, the glorious land which God had given, had promised over to his people. Now, we're going to get more to that in just a few minutes. But here's the last thing I want us to see. We're going to look at these verses. I'm not trying to skip out of order, but there's actually a lot here in like verses 9 through 14, which are, are going to be easier to explain once we get the whole vision. Everybody good? Okay. But here's what I want you to see at the very end, this ninth image. Verse 14, and he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Real recap, Little Horn comes against God's people, destroys. After 23 mornings and evenings, finally he's overtaken, all right? So we have this picture, ram, goat, horns, destroy God's people, and then he's finally demolished. Now, here's the interpretation. So we got all those up there? Okay, sweet, we got nine of those. Then verse number 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Here's the beautiful thing here. We don't just get the revelation from God. We also get the interpretation from God. We don't just get a gift. We get a double gift. This is, this is awesome. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli. And it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. This is probably, just so you know, most theologians would agree, this is Jesus talking to Gabriel. And he's saying, help this man understand the vision. So the vision is coming to Daniel from Gabriel, who gets it from Jesus. It comes directly from God. He says, verse 17, so he came near to where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. This is what folks do when they see angels. We see it throughout the New Testament. And by the way, he uses the name Gabriel here. Daniel is the only Old Testament book where we have names of the angels. We see the name Gabriel here, and we see the name Michael for the angel of war in a few chapters. Maybe chapter 10, I think that's where it is. So he's frightened. Daniel falls down on his face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. When he says right here, he says, O son of man, we saw that back in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This is actually different. So it's the same language here translated into the English, but he's not talking about son of man. So chapter 17 was talking about Jesus as the son of man. Here he's actually saying, you're a son of Adam or Adam in the Hebrew. He's saying, you are just a mere mortal, but you have give, been given these visions for the time of the end. Automatically, our minds go to, oh, the end of all time. Contextually, again, Almost all theologians, 99% of them agree, he's talking here not about the end of time, like for us even today in 2023, looking forward to the future. What he's talking about is this is the vision for when the end of this story is going to be. So he's saying, I'm going to tell you everything, this entire vision that you just had from the beginning to its end, to the end, not of as we look at time, but to the end of this vision. Okay? Everybody good so far? All right. Doesn't seem like it. That's all right. You got Facebook on your phones, okay? Verse 18, 
Now we're going to get into figuring out what these nine things mean, okay? Verse number 18, here's the interpretation. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Now we have, here's the interpretation being given to him, not in a vision, but in a dream. If before, if he wasn't literally there just looking at this future happening, he would have said the same thing. He doesn't. It's different. He goes into a dream. But he touched me and made me stand up. So this is still in his dream. Verse 19, and he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter days, uh, that latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So we see in verse number 20, these are the two kings. Now, where does the ram come from? Which direction? You have to go back and look at verse, uh, let's see, uh, verse number something towards the beginning. Verse number four. I saw the ram charging which way? Westward and northward and southward, which means the ram came from which direction? It came from the east. Guess where in relation to Babylon, Media Persia was? The east, okay? So he says this ram came, and it represents the kings of Media and Persia. So first, the ram is Media and Persia. We have the two horns. It says right here, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Pretty simple explanation so far. Then he says... Uh, and here, here's how we know. The higher horn, we saw this back in chapter 7. Remember one of the beasts, it looked like a bear? And it wasn't just a regular bear. What was it? Remember what the bear looked like? Anybody? Had ribbons in his mouth? Yeah. So it, it knew good food. Yeah. It was raised up on one side. It was a lumpy bear. Remember? So we got this lumpy bear and it was raised up on one side because Persia was greater than Media. And so it says the bear was, was Medo-Persia, uh, Medo but it was raised up on one side to represent the power and the dominance of Persia. Same thing here. Two horns. One's the, the, the ram represents Medo-Persia. Two horns, Medes and the Persians. Persians are greater, so it's a higher horn. Okay. So he says there's two horns, one's uh, that, yeah, so we've got two kings, the higher horn is Persia. Then we enter into, verse number 22, sorry, verse 21, and the goat, and I love this, this is so easy, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. So the goat is Greece, and this conspicuous horn that comes up between his eyes is Alexander the Great. So now we're into some history. Some of you are like, oh, okay, so this is historical. Yes. When was this written? After all these things occurred? No. 200 years before the occurrence and the entrance of Alexander the Great. So we have this conspicuous horn is Alexander the Great. Here's how Alexander the Great, the Great and we saw in chapter 6, uh, King Darius, who's king of the Persians. Alexander the Great, he's called the Great because he was. He conquered the Persians who had over 100,000 soldiers plus tens of thousands of soldiers on horseback. Alexander the Great only had 35,000 um, uh, ground soldiers. That's all he had. But even those 35,000 soldiers, being outnumbered three or four to one, they still dominated, took over the Persians. And so the Greeks won at that point, okay? Sounds crazy. But here's what's even crazier. That day, when they overtook the Persians, the Persians lost 20,000 men in battle. And Alexander the Great only lost 100. That's wild. So he was great. He knew his stuff. So he comes in. He begins uh, his reign over not just Greece, but then we saw this a couple weeks ago. He begins to take over all the known world. 
And Alexander the Great conquered all of the known world in 10 years. He started when he was 23, taking over the world because his parents had, had died early. He comes in, uh, and he, by the age of 33, he had conquered the whole world, the whole known world, really fast. What was the image that we had? What was the beast back in chapter 7 that we had for Greece? Anybody know? Leopard. And not just regular leopard. What did the leopard have on his back? Wings. How many? Four. Not just two, but four. Dude was quick. What do we have here? The goat, what's he doing? How's he running? So fast. He's not even touching the ground. It's incredible. And Alexander the Great died. We see here that he's broken. He actually dies at the age of 33. We're not exactly sure why. But we know that after he conquered the world, he sat and he was mournful because he didn't have anybody else to conquer. And so uh, probably the most likely story of how he died, uh, one night he went out and he got sloshed uh, because he was just so depressed. He had nothing else to do. He walked out into a rainstorm. He got kind of lost. He came back. He caught pneumonia, died the next week. That's the best that we can do. Here's what we do know is that the broken horn, he dies. Alexander the Great dies. We pick up in verse number 22. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. So after this horn, we know that Alexander the Great did not have any heirs. And so his kingdom was divided. Again, we saw it last week in chapter 7. Same idea there. And here we're just focusing, narrowing in on the ram and the goat between Persia and Greece. He, his kingdom was not divided into heirs because he didn't have any, but he had four generals. Again, we see that historically. He had four generals. His nation was divided among these four generals, which are the four horns that come up there. Isn't this crazy? God's in the details. This is not just a history story. It's the fact that Daniel received this revelation hundreds of years before it happened. Now we can look back a couple thousand years and we're like, man, he got it. You know, I wish I had this kind of prophecy for tonight's game. I'd, I'd be a millionaire. You know, this would be great. And I'm also not condoning gambling, okay? So we see here the four horns are divided up. We see the fact that God is over all of human history. Now we get into the real fun part, okay? Verses 23 through 35, sorry, 23 through 25. And my dad mentioned this name a couple weeks ago last week, this name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Let's say that together. Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay, so we see Antiochus. He was actually Antiochus IV, who is the one who's coming to reign here. He was called, he gave himself the name Epiphanes, which literally means, uh, I am God manifest. He comes down, he said that he was the personification of the Greek god Zeus. Pretty bold claim, <laughs> okay? He also, uh, it also means the illustrious God. Now, his enemies called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means madman. So they took the Epiphanes, which means I'm a godlike creature, and a little play on words, they called him Epimenes, which means this dude's crazy. Like, I don't understand him. So when we pick up right here in these verses, we see this little horn in verse number 23, and we already saw it. This little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes. Now you're like, okay, is it the same little horn from chapter 7? It's not. Same image, but it's for two totally different things. Little horn in chapter 7 is for the Antichrist at the end of time. Right here, th the picture that we have is this couple hundred year window just of Persia and Greece. So verse number 23. In the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, king of bold face. Again, this king, Antiochus Epiphanes. Notice how he's described here. When we talk about this, this is not the Antichrist. Sorry, I know I, I told you to look down. I'm, I'm all over the place. So Antiochus Epiphanes is not the Antichrist, but he has the same spirit of Antichrist. He's treating the people of God 
the same way that when we get to the end of time, of all time, of human history, the Antichrist is going to come down and seek to destroy the saints. We saw it last week. We, we are at war. The spirit of Babylon, the spirit of Antichrist, began when Satan declared war on God. He said, God, I don't like you. I don't like your creation. And the enemy seeks to destroy you emotionally, morally, financially, spiritually, physically. The enemy is out for you. Friends, we are at war with the spirit of Babylon. And it looks tons of different ways. It expresses itself all around us. I think about, um, yeah, just some of the things that have happened even recently around us. If we even look back at the past decade, here's a stat from last year. The, the pornography industry makes more money, made more money last year than the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. And they make a lot of money. I think about the different bills that are put before Congress, bills that are seeking, that are attempting to take a child's life even after that child is born. I think about the brokenness that is all around us, what our kids are taught in schools. I mean, evolution is a joke, and we're just meant to assume these things. Friends, don't be surprised by the spirit of Antichrist. Don't be surprised by the spirit of Babylon. Don't be surprised, but be ready. We see here the spirit of Babylon is personified by Antiochus Epiphanes. But it's not novel to that time. It's not going to be novel to the end of time. The spirit of Babylon is not what happened or what's going to happen. The spirit of Babylon, the spirit of Antichrist, is what always happens. It's what always happens. We are in the middle of this war against good and evil. And we see here, notice how Antiochus Epiphanes is described. Verse 23, okay, I'll, that was my aside on uh, Antichrist. So we have the king. Notice how he's described. He's a king of bold face. There's an arrogance and a pride to him. Notice one who understands riddles. In other words, literally, he sees the physical world, but he also knows what's happening in the spiritual world. You're like, whoa, this sounds a little demonic. Yeah, notice what it says. Uh, he shall arise. His power shall be great, but it's not his own power. Where does his power come from? from the enemy, from Satan, from the devil. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does. He'll destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. This dude's, I mean, he's intense. He even calls himself, if you look down at the end of verse number 25, by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. He shall become great. Satan is called the father of what? Lies. He's not called the father of adultery. He's not called the father of pornography. He's called the father of lies. And we see it, if you look at New Testament passages, we saw it last week, if you look at all the New Testament passages, when Paul writes, in the book of Hebrews, we see it also, when he writes about being ready for the end, the end of the time is coming, we see it in 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, what does he say? Do not be deceived. He's saying, this power that we see here, the spirit of Babylon, the ultimate power of the enemy is one of deception. 
deception. That's as bad as it gets. And notice what he does here to God's people. He campaigns against God's people. He rises up against the prince. We see it right there in the middle of verse number 25. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of preachers. He's saying, I'm going to combat. We saw the, the glorious land, Canaan. Here he even wants to go to war against Jesus Christ. He wants to war against God. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. So I want us to, to take a, a brief uh, pause right there, right before that, the end of that sentence right there. So now let's go back and see, describe a little more about this Antiochus Epiphanes to, to see what he did, okay? So before he's killed at the end of verse number 25, Let's go back. Go back and look at verse number 10 with me. Sorry, I'm on the same page. It's right here. Verse number 10. Notice as he talks about this little horn, and we already, we've already seen this is Antiochus Epiphanes. He grew exceedingly great toward the south and toward the east and toward the glorious land. Verse 10. And it grew great, even to the host of heaven. He's, he's declaring war on God. And some of the hosts and some of the stars that threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Here he's talking about the, the people of God. He's saying, I mean, he made war against them. It became great, even as great as the prince of hosts. He's saying in his own mind, he was declaring himself to be equal with God. And again, he says, I'm Zeus manifest, but he declares himself to be equal with God. Verse 11, it became great, even as great as the prince of hosts. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Now, here's what we know happened uh, that Antiochus Epiphanes did. In 168, everybody say 168, years before Jesus, Antiochus Epiphanes, he came down and he wanted to destroy the people of God there in Jerusalem. So here's what he did. He came in, he warred against them. Finally, he made it into Jerusalem. And in 168 BC, he went into the temple in Jerusalem and desecrated the entire temple. He went into the holy place where they would normally offer sacrifices. So we have this, this image here in verse 11 of what he's doing there with the burnt offering. And here's what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He went in and he didn't just slaughter rams and goats like normal and pigeons. He went in and sacrificed a pig, which for the Jewish people is as unclean as unclean can get. He goes in and says, your God stinks. I'm a better God than him. In three days, he killed 80,000 Jews. The dude was brutal. In fact, some theologians call him the Hitler of the Old Testament. He sent another 40,000 slaves, sorry, another 40,000 Jews into slavery. As he was sacrificing this pig on the altar there in the temple, he began an orgy that lasted for weeks. It was, he was saying, yeah, you're God, I'm better than him. He wanted to throw down the people of God. And for three, just over three years, almost three and a half years, interesting number, we'll get back to that in one second. For almost three and a half years, he was there in Jerusalem torturing the people of God. If anyone said, I, I, you know, we're supposed to be circumcised, he would put you to death. He took all copies of the Torah, what they had as the Old Testament at that point to that time. He took all of them and destroyed all copies of the Torah. And if you were found having one in your home, he would kill you and your family and anybody that you knew. The dude was brutal. So when we look right here at verses 10 and 11, he said he took this regular burnt offering from them. He made his sanctuary where the sanctuary of God was supposed to be. Again, historically, we look at this and we see the truth in this. Look at verse number 12. And a host will be given over to it, talking about him as the little horn, 
together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground. And it will act and prosper. What's the opposite of truth? Deception. We see the heart of this one. He doesn't just throw these traditions to the ground. He throws truth to the ground. Verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking. Quick side note, probably Jesus right there. Again, I think we have two Christophanies here in this passage. I don't have time to expound on that. Then I heard a holy one, Jesus, speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke. So this is an angel, probably Gabriel again. He's asking Jesus. Here's what he asks in the middle of verse 13. For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering and transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary, the temple, and host to be trampled underfoot? So we have Gabriel looking here at this, at this vision, at this prophecy saying, how long is the temple of God going to, be, going to be made desolate? Desolate, how long is this going to happen? How long is, is the e- evil one, how long is Antiochus Epiphanes going to be bringing terror on the people of God? How long? Verse 14, and Jesus said to Gabriel, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. And so we said 168 BC, Antiochus comes in and does all these things to the temple. Well, history shows us that in 164 BC, so about three and a half years later, a little less than three and a half years later, there's a guy named Judas Maccabees. Everybody say Judas Maccabees. Yeah, if that last name sounds familiar, that's because if you look at uh, Catholic Bibles, it's not part of the canon that we hold in our hands. Um, But up until the mid-1500s, it was part of the Bible. In fact, if you look at Luther's Bible, he included some of those apocryphal books, uh, but we don't include those in the inspired word of God. But we have the book of Maccabees, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, and there we can see it. And historically, we can also see this guy named Judas Maccabees comes in, and he revolts against Antiochus Epiphanes, and he takes him out. So we have about three and a half years. You're like, okay, well, about 2,300 because that's like six years and something. Some of you all got your calculators out. How many years is this? But here's where we see why this number is important is because, again, we can figure out exactly what the numbers mean. I don't have a chart for you. I don't know for sure. But here's what we know is that they would have morning and evening sacrifices there in the temple. And so the 2,300 could refer to 2,300 literal days. My thought is it actually refers to 2,300 sacrifices, which cuts that number in half to 1,150 days, each one of those days having two sacrifices, totaling 2,300, which is just over three years. Either way, you can figure that out. You can, uh, you know, send me a Facebook message, which I won't get. Uh, Like, whatever that is, here's what Jesus is telling Gabriel. Here's what this passage means, is an end will come. The torture, the suffering, the desolation that's brought against God's people, it will not last forever. There will be an end to the man of lawlessness. There will be an end to our suffering as God's people. There will be an end to evil. There will be an end even to Antiochus Epiphanes. That's the purpose of this passage. To say God's in control of all things, our trust goes to him. So we have here the 2300 probably three and a half years. So that's the interpretation of this. Now, let's look back. I think we left off in about verse number 25. Yeah, so verse 25. By his cunning, oh yeah, he'd be great. The very last sentence right there, and he shall be broken. So this is again the same person. He shall be broken, but by no human hand. In other words, here's how Antiochus Epiphanes died. 
was he got some sort of infection in his stomach and he could not get rid of it. And it made him more and more angry. And the doctors at that time could not figure out how or why he got it. But we know why he got it. It wasn't by human hand. It wasn't just by normal sickness. It's by the hand of God that he was taken out. Because God's in control of all things, even in the details. Verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the morning that have been told to me, but seal up for the vision, for it refers to many days from now. So Daniel gets this vision of what's going to happen in a couple hundred years. He's, and the angel says to him, take this and seal it up. Because while your people are in exile, while they are suffering right here in the book of Daniel, we need to be encouraged that we're not going to be in exile forever. God's got this. He's in complete control. I think in verse number 26, what he's telling Daniel is getting home from Babylon is going to be a hard and arduous road. It's going to include suffering. He says, but stand firm in whom your faith is in. It's in God. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, as surely as he overcame and triumphed once for you, so surely you that love his name shall triumph in him too. That's true for those who are in exile. That's true for the Jews who are under the hand of Antiochus Epiphanes. That's true for us even today. We will triumph. This battle has already been won by Christ. But then look at verse number 27. Notice how he responds to this. Verse 27, and I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. So first he was afraid, and then he was petrified. Yeah, that's right. And he lay sick for some days. Then I rose up and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Boom, the end, <laughs> you know. Here's what we see Daniel. He, does, he doesn't start digging into the details and like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna stay at home and just try to figure out all the details of these things. Let me just try to see what this means. The other thing he doesn't do is move to Montana and say, I just wanna get away from this to spare myself. No, he's sick. It brings him to the, like, oh man, I cannot handle this. This was a real emotional, visceral, uh, visceral physical experience that he had here. But then he says, you know what? God's got this. I'm going to go back and live my life the way that I was designed to live it, doing what I'm supposed to do, even serving the nation of Babylon. Because his trust was not in knowing what was going to happen. He didn't need to know the future because he knew the one that held the future. His heart was not secure in knowing the what and the how and the why. But here, Daniel knew the who. His heart, just like in chapter 7, we can look at all the details, but our eyes and our heart should be ministered to by the Almighty One, the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man. Our hearts go to the throne of Jesus Christ and say, man, he is the one who has our hope. He has our hearts. And because of him, we are secure. So however you're walking in here this morning, however you walked in, Just know that Jesus identifies with that. He lived a life that we were designed to live, but he was ridiculed and mocked, and he was confused, and he was depressed, and he was anxious, and he suffered, and he was betrayed, and he was lied to. And he says, yeah, I'm with you in that. I can identify with you. Here are five things that I want us to see. 
to walk away with from this passage. The first three will be up on the screen on the first slide, then two more on the other one if you want to take a picture, talk about these later with your life group or whatever that looks like. But here's what I want us to see as we walk away from this passage, knowing that Daniel doesn't know the future, but he knows the Father's heart. Here's the first thing, is that the kingdoms of this world will always war against the saints. Last week, what do we see? These beasts, they make war against the saints of God. Who are the saints? Everybody raise your hand. Yeah, that's you. You're like, I don't, have, I don't really feel holy. Okay. Then be reminded of what Jesus Christ has done. You are holy. He makes war against the saints. When the church is being the church, we know that we are being that. We know that we are living out of our identity because we are going to be persecuted. A bad application of, of these last two chapters of Daniel, a bad, a bad interpretation of these chapters would be, if the church were simply being the church, then we would be experiencing some sort of prosperity. Man, if the church were just being the church, the nation of America would not look like this. If the church were just being the church, the beasts wouldn't be so beastly. The spirit of Babylon, the beasts, they are out to kill and destroy us. So while we go back to work like Daniel, we serve the beast. But we're not going to change the beast. We serve King Jesus, even in the midst of it. He's our hope. Not that our circumstances are going to change. That's called prosperity gospel. We know that we are serving Jesus when we are being persecuted. Secondly, it may look like the spirit of Babylon is reigning, but history is not finished. And furthermore, your story is not finished. So even in your life, it may be like, man, I am, I am just, I'm on the struggle bus with addiction. I cannot seem to fight this. Maybe your relationships are completely broken. Maybe you look around and those around you, the context that you live in, but man, this is just messed up. The spirit of Babylon is reigning. Can I tell you, as long as you're sitting here, able to breathe, your story is not done yet. Jesus is still greater. And even when we look at, at the story of uh, here in Daniel, we see that the Persians are those who, were, who's, who released the Jews to go back into their homeland. So while we can say, man, all these beasts, terrible, as bad as it gets, what's the reason that God, what's the mandate that God gave us in Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 28? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with worshipers of me. Great commission, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples. So that's right there for a minute. The Persians, instead of keeping the Jews in exile, they sent them back to their homeland. The Greeks, they established a common language. In fact, the New Testament is written in what language? Greek. We had a common world language. The Romans, who came after the Greeks, what did they do? They, they started a transportation, transportation, a road system worldwide so that when Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, how is it possible? Because the Jews are back in their homeland, because we have a common language to speak, to declare the good news of Jesus Christ, and now because of the Romans, we have a way of getting around the world to tell about Jesus coming back from the dead. God is in the details. He's not scared by the beasts. He's not worried about, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. He knows what's going to happen. He's in control of those things. And the same is true for your life. The third thing is that while rams and goats fight for your soul, set your eyes on the lamb. 
Set your eyes on the lamb. Who is Jesus Christ? I was talking to Keith this week, and we were um, talking about when, uh, when Lucifer was in heaven, and Lucifer was this angel of light who then uh, becomes uh, Satan. He's cast down. We know him as the devil, the evil one. He's the spirit of Babylon. But what happens when he actually declares war against God? Lucifer thought he was beautiful, and he, he was probably the most beautiful angel that God created. And so Lucifer wanted the worship of God's people, of the other angels, even of God himself. Man, look at how great I am. I'm better than God. Sounds real familiar, right? You're like, oh, yeah, sounds like Antiochus Epiphanes. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't sound like any of us. And so Lucifer said, man, look how awesome I am. Look at my will. And then Jesus walks in the room, and Jesus says, I'm even more beautiful. Hmm. But the tactic of the evil one is still the same. Because the evil one still says, yeah, you got Jesus, but look, if you had the power of Rome, if you had power, look how good your life would be. If you just had the intelligence, like the Greeks, man, think of how much better life would be. If you just had wealth, like the Persians, just think about how much better life would be. Satan sets up all of these things around us to distract us, to keep our eyes and our hearts from Jesus Christ. Set your eyes on the lamb. Fourth thing, the final word is not had by the ram or goat, but the final word is had by the lamb. If you think about these animals, uh, if, if they got into a, you know, um, um, what do they call those things, like a royal rumble? You know, whatever, it's like a free-for-all kind of thing? I don't know. Um, but if all these things ended up in a, in a ring together, then the lamb is definitely going to lose. It's the weakest of all those three animals. The ram and the goat, you know, like kind of a free-for-all. Right here we see that the goat won. Okay, maybe it would in real life. I don't know. I have no idea. But we know for sure the lamb would not win. In our lives, we value strength. We value power. We value control. We value pride. We value knowing things that are going to happen we value self-righteousness and self-reliance. But can I tell you, if we pull back the curtains of heaven just a little bit, what we see is that what God values is humility. What God values is sacrifice. What God values is true love. And that's what the lamb displays. And we're like, yeah, that's, that's weak. Exactly. And in our weakness, friends, God is made strong. Lastly, no beast can destroy something that has already died and rose again. Amen? Back in the uh, mid-2000s, me and my wife were just married. And uh, this was back when we had this thing called Blockbuster. And we would go, we would, you could actually do Blockbuster by mail. And you could only get two discs at a time. And so we would get these two discs and we were on this 24 binge. And uh, we were playing it through Angel Vid, you know, or whatever. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, but we were watching 24. Jack Bauer it was amazing. Each season happened like in a 24-hour time period. You know, it was like, could it really happen that way? Yes, they had helicopters, okay? So they were flying all over L.A. and New York and stuff. And so we would get these two discs, and we would just, we would just binge watch them. This is before kids, you know, life was, you know, way less poor. And uh, so we were, we'd watch these two discs every night. And then what you could do is you could take those two discs back to Blockbuster, like the real thing, you know, kids, you can look up in the history books. And uh, uh, so we'd take those two discs back and you could trade them for two more discs. And so we would watch 
the, the 24 episodes that were on disc one, disc two, and then I would, I would uh, not literally run, you know, like I would jump on my horse and carrot, you know, like I'd take my horse over to Blockbuster. That's all, you know, it's a long time ago. And I would go over to Blockbuster and I would trade those two discs in for the next discs in the season. So we're in the middle of season three and Jack Bauer, the, the lead in this show, he dies. And we're like, oh my gosh, 24 is over. Jack Bauer is dead. So of course we freak out. You know, Shannon's running around the house. I'm just kidding. So she's like, go to Blockbuster right now. So I'm like, yes, ma'am. And so I jump in my 94 Buick and I go to Blockbuster as fast as I can. And while I'm there, I'm going to the, to the shelf uh, to get you know, the next discs in season three. And I look and season four is already out. And guess whose face is on the cover of season four? Jack Bauer. That Joker's not dead. He's still alive. There's hope. Then I got back home as fast as I could, and she had some cookies ready for me, and it was amazing. Friends, the reason that we have the book of Daniel is that when we look around at suffering and persecution, when we look inward at the very real power of sin in our own lives, we can go and we can look at the cover of season four, and the face of Jesus is on that. When we get to Revelation chapter 21, we see the end of time that Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. He is not still dead and in the ground. He is victorious. So I would plead with you this morning, don't set your eyes on the things that are being put in front of you by the enemy. Set your eyes on Jesus Christ, the one who humbled himself to be persecuted and to die for you. And putting your faith and your trust in Jesus takes humility. Today and tomorrow and the next day. But it's worth it because Jesus Christ is coming back. That, friends, is our hope. That's our hope. I would plead with you to fall upon the mercy of God this morning. He alone is our hope and our righteousness. Whatever you came in here with this morning, take that to the cross. That's called trust. We can trust the heart of our Father because he is so good and because he sent his son to die for you and for you and for you and for you. And y'all over here on these sides too. He's a good father. His son is coming back to rule and to reign. He was raised to life. As we move into this time of communion, I want us to be reminded that even when Christ was on earth, the reason that he was put to death, it was at the hands of the spirit of Babylon. It was at the hands of the spirit of Antichrist. His friends had betrayed and rejected him. The Roman soldiers beat, scourged, mocked him. Even Pilate is the one who said, yeah, go punish this one who has never sinned. I'm washing my hands clean of this. The scribes and the Pharisees are the one who set him up for betrayal. Judas, one of his followers, the one who sold him into that. That's the spirit of Babylon and Antichrist at work. Jesus understood that as much as any of us do. So in the middle of our suffering, of our wandering, of our hurt, our pain, our anger, we look to Jesus Christ. He understands. We have these four stations set up around the room. I would plead with you that as we come together, for those who are in Christ, who are in good standing with uh, a local church, that we would be reminded of Christ's sacrifice, of his body that was broken, 
of his blood that was shed that now covers us in his righteousness. That should bring us to remembering what Jesus Christ has done. It should bring us to deep repentance and confession of sin, but it should also lead us to rejoicing in the fact that Jesus is coming back. So family, you're invited to join me even now.